chapter 12. Would somebody read verses 1 to 4? These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You will not worship the Lord your God with such things. So, as he starts out these detailed laws, he starts out talking about laws regarding worship. And we'll see that uh, throughout this next uh, several uh, couple of chapters. And he specifically starts with them not worshiping in the way that the uh, pagans did. There must not be any residue of paganism in their worship to God. Now, as he talks about that, he talks about several points. He mentions their places of worship versus the place God would choose. He mentions worshiping the gods in their name versus the name of the Lord God, their gods versus your God. He's trying to emphasize the idea that they must be totally different in their worship uh, from the, the worship that was being offered in the land of Canaan at this point. They've got to completely eliminate all of the paraphernalia, uh, the religious shrines and the images and all of that, remove the names of their God from their memory. God is not a God who believes that every religion is right and every way is a proper way to get to Him. He is against the idea that there can be many ways to achieve the same goal. God wanted all of those false worship systems, practices, and images totally destroyed. There are a lot of people who would say that, uh, you know, all religions in the world, or at least most of them, are valid. Uh, Most of them will save you. Most of them are okay. They're just... You know, every culture has its own tradition and its own way of looking at God and its own way of coming to the Lord. And all of that is supposed to be actually healthy and, and uh, you know, helpful to us and, and all of that. And that's just not the way God looked at it. He was clear about the fact that all of these religious practices and beliefs of the nations in the land were an abomination to him and Israel was supposed to totally destroy those things and not have any part of it. He says in verse 4, you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. And so that's where he begins. If you want to worship God correctly, don't worship him incorrectly. You know, get rid of the the paganism uh, out of your system. Comments and thoughts on this beginning as he starts talking about proper worship. He mentions destroying the high places. You know, that's used a lot of times. It appears that that's where they tended to set up their worship centers. But is that always used as as a uh, sinful place, a high place? Yeah, good, very good question. Um, They did like high places to worship, I think probably for the same reason we do. You know, you seem a little closer to God. You ever noticed, particularly like in southern Indiana, I don't know if in other places or not, but uh, where a lot of the French and so forth migrated, the highest spot in the city is the Catholic Church. 
That's, that's true in a lot of cities in southern Indiana, small towns and things like that. Because, you know, you get as high as you can and you're closer to God. They would also try to set up their uh, idolatrous shrines under uh, big trees because the shade is pleasant and, and uh, maybe because it seemed closer to nature or whatever. Um, so this chapter is, is going to the idea God would establish one place for his name. He is going to pick out a place of worship. And they were not supposed to, after he does that, worship even him anywhere else. Couldn't worship idols anywhere. And a lot of times the high places were idolatrous. But even if it was a high place dedicated to the worship of Jehovah, it was wrong after he picked out that place. Uh, Now, he didn't pick out that place immediately. We're going to look at that in a moment. So there was a period of time when they could actually offer sacrifices to God in various places. Then when he chose that one place, all high place worship was, was forbidden. Good, good question. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, Tim. I was going to ask a question about that, actually. So, here we have the whole idea of God setting his name in one particular place. And we also go in um, Exodus chapter 20, we're dealing with specific instructions on how altars are supposed to be built. So, you, I feel like you have a contrast between you have the altar at the tabernacle, the future altar where God's going to have his name set but you also have instructions for various altars to be built. So it's like, what would have been the purpose of building altars if you already kind of have one with a tabernacle and you know you're going to receive one at the temple? And also, with the uh, temple um, cat, with the temple altar, why was it not built according to the instructions that were given in Exodus 20? Yeah, you did have a period of time where they could <coughs> worship and they could sacrifice in other places. I think I'm going to go ahead and have us read this next section because that's kind of where we're headed. And I think that will put the idea before us that we can continue to answer those questions from. Somebody go ahead and read 5 to 14. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and your firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in your households and all you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that, that we're doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given to you. But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when, you, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose 
in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offering, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Okay, so you see this idea. God was going to choose a place, but when was he going to do that? In uh, verse 10, when you cross the Jordan, you live in the land, and he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live in security. There was going to be a period of time in which they were conquering the land and which they were getting rest and peace and victory over their enemies. And at some point in time, after that had happened, God was going to choose a place. When God chose the a place, <laughs> then they could not worship anywhere else. They would not be able to do as they had done so far and set up altars and offer sacrifices in different places. Now, it looks to me very clear in the Old Testament record that the place was Jerusalem and the time was the era of David and Solomon. And so what I see is people like Samuel, who was a very faithful servant of God, were uh, offering sacrifices in various places. For example, you remember when he went to anoint David as king in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16, that God told him to offer a sacrifice there and to be able to tell people that that's what he'd done in Bethlehem so as not to reveal that he had anointed David as the next king. Saul probably would not have taken kindly to that. Um, so God wanted them to offer sacrifices in various places until the time of David and Solomon. That's when they built the temple, the place God would choose for his name to dwell. So you see a big change in what's said in the historical records about high places. Up to David and Solomon, high places were okay, as long as they worshipped God in the high places and not idols. From the time period of David and Solomon on, then the high places were always considered a negative. You'll read sometimes that the king was a good king, except they still worshipped in the high places, or something like that. That seemed to be a really hard thing for them to eliminate. Um, but that was considered to be a negative from the time of David and Solomon on. So as I understand it, they could make altars and they could burn sacrifices in other places until the temple was built. Okay, further questions and comments on all of this uh, as we're going through. Now, do you see something here that I think, I think we need to just take a moment and think about what this means then? That God wants worship to be done the way he says. It ought to be offered according to God's specifications and God's directions. It's not up to us to decide the forms of worship, the place of worship, or anything else about worship, because the object of worship is to glorify and please God, not to do something we like. That ought to be fundamental, shouldn't it? Uh, the, the point of worship is not to, to have something we enjoy, but is to honor the Lord. And so we listen to the Lord's instructions, and we offer him the worship that he wants. Um, and, and the fact that he would have various specifications. He might say, you know, you worship this way in this place, and not that way in that place, is fully his right. He's the God who we're worshiping. We want to give him what he wants. Uh, you know, there, the, a small child might feel like it was a great present to the parents to color on the walls of the house. But the parent owning the house and being the authority over the child may be able to say, that's not the kind of present that I want you to give me. You know, who am I to decide what's appropriate worship to God? How, how would I know what he would want except by what he says? 
people today might say, well, I just feel like it would be such an honor to God to do this or that or the other thing. Well, you know, I'm so much different than God that my intuition about what I think you'll probably like is not very good. You know, I can't rely on that. I have to listen to him and he sets out the directions and instructions. That's such a fundamental idea and we see it right here. Thoughts, comments, through verse 14. Awesome. And that's completely opposite of what the world tells us, right? The world tells us that God, just come as you are, come any way that you want. And again, verse verse 4 there says, you shall not worship me in those ways. And, and that that's opposite of what we hear from the world around us. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's so contrary to the spirit of our age that we've really got to listen to these things and think them through because we're constantly having those values challenged by the world. Alex? Yeah, in verse 4 it also gives a specification that it's all or nothing. Um, kind of like in uh, the letter to Laodicea that they couldn't be lukewarm. They should have been hot or cold, but Jesus would spew them out of their mouth if they were lukewarm. Here, if they worship the other gods, they shouldn't worship God at all. Uh, either worship God alone or don't worship God at all. Yeah, it's an abomination to worship Him improperly. Seth? Uh, just, you look back, chapter 11, verse 22, if you're careful, uh, verse 32, you shall be careful. Chapter 12, verse 13, be careful. 19, be careful. 28, be careful. 32, you shall be careful. Uh, right in the section about how God wants to be worshipped, it's surrounded by this word, be careful how you worship God. Uh, it really should be a lesson for us. Amen. Great point. Tim? There's, um, the altars that they would have been built, building, the random, the various stone ones, but those have been mostly for like voted kind of free will offerings, and then the one at the tabernacle for your annual kind of offerings from before God. I'm just trying to figure out what the purpose of having various altars when you've already kind of one present. Um... I'm not sure I can answer that question. I think they could have offered various sacrifices, perhaps, at the other altars also. Um, but I don't know if I know enough to be sure about that. So, I'll, somebody know the answer to that? Well, at least I'm in a you know, comfortable position with everyone else. <laughs> awesome. I just appreciate it again, and we've seen it throughout, this book, but, but God setting aside for the servants, the, the male and female slaves. God intends for everyone to worship Him. And, and it doesn't matter statute, class, what, however you want to look at it. God expects worship, and He expects His people to allow people to worship Him at all times that He requires. Great point. Tim? I think it's also interesting that there, there are some things that are inherently wrong in doing um, you know, all the time, like, you know, worshiping other gods is always wrong, or Will always be wrong, but when it comes to the ways in which God wants to be worshipped, He does have the ability and the right to change how He wants to be worshipped. Because in this point, in this time, for this reason, He wants to be worshipped this way. But now at this time, because it's significant, He's only be worshipped in that way. It's just interesting to see how God's pleasure for worship has changed throughout history. Good point. Yeah, good. That's, a, that's a good illustration. I hadn't thought about it in that light, but that's a good point. God does modify what he wants in worship from time to time. Other thoughts? Yes. 
Well, our whole goal in worship is to seek to please God. So what are we trying to do when we look at the scriptures? We're trying to understand from them what pleases God. I don't want to have an attitude that, well, if God didn't tell me I can't, I'll go ahead and try it. I want to have the attitude that I want to know God would be pleased before I do it. I don't want to act in some sort of a presumptuous way, just assuming that, well, if I want it, he will. So I try to always think, what has he said in his word to let me understand what would please him? That's really a part of my love for God. If I love him, I want to be careful to do exactly what he wants. So in any question, I need to look at the Bible evidence and say, the best I can understand from these passages, what does he want? That's really the goal. Just one additional thing I noticed in this section. There are a couple of commands to rejoice in what you're doing. Yes. Um, I noticed verse 7 and verse 12, and then we haven't read it yet, but verse 18 also. Um, And so just he emphasizes that's another part of what you're doing is that he wants you to be joyful, and this should be a, a happy thing and not a have to thing or... You know, you want to be careful, obviously, but it's okay and encouraged to rejoice in what you're doing as well. Yes. Wouldn't you prefer that the person who gives you a present would enjoy doing it? (laughs) You know, it kind of takes away a little bit from the significance of the gift if you can tell the person really doesn't want to and feels obligated to. So, yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Yes. To answer her question more maybe specifically, he said to worship on the or take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, every week after this day. And in the Old Testament they worship every Sabbath, just not whenever they wanted to. Very good. Alright, so you know, there has been this rule in the wilderness period that when they would eat an animal they could only eat it if they had killed it at the sanctuary with the priest's authorization. Leviticus 17 seems to indicate that. But when they go into the land, they're not all going to be together in this one big camp like they were in the wilderness. They're going to spread out over the land of Canaan. If they had to take every animal they wanted to eat all the way to Jerusalem to sacrifice, or Shiloh, or wherever the tabernacle was, wouldn't that be difficult? So God basically relaxes that requirement in this next section. Somebody read 15 to 28. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, accordingly to the blessings of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, but the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain 
or your new wine or your oil on the firstborn of your herd or your, your flock. <clears throat> of any of the of any of your offerings which you have vowed, of your free will offerings, or of the heave offerings of your hand. So you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. <clears throat> you and your son and your daughters, your male servant, and your female servant and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all for which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, Let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat. You may eat as much meat as you want as your heart desires. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock which the Lord has given you just as I have commanded, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life within the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you. you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord, only the holy things which you have in your vow offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, and on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all, the, all these words which I have commanded you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Alright, so when they kill non-sacrificial animals to eat, they don't have to trek all the way to the sanctuary. They can kill them where they are and eat them. However, they could not eat blood. The principle of not eating blood did not just pertain to animals offered in sacrifice. They were not allowed to eat the blood of any animal. That has been true in every era. Genesis 9, here in the law, and in Acts 15. The life of the animals in the blood, and God does not allow his people ever to eat the blood of an animal. We're not talking about meat that's undercooked and it may look a little red. We're talking about animals that have not been properly bled. Not a huge question usually in the U.S. Few of us would want to eat the blood. In Brazil, it's a lot bigger question. There are a lot more dishes prepared with animal blood in, in Brazil. Not still super common, but a lot of people have uh, traditionally eaten some dishes that way, but that's prohibited by God in every era. Um, and, and it certainly didn't mean that they could slaughter and eat sacrificial animals. There were certain animals that were set aside for God, like the firstborn and the animals they had vowed and, and so forth and so on. So they weren't allowed to eat animals that were already given to God. But otherwise, they could sacrifice and eat the clean animals wherever they lived. Uh, they didn't have to take them to God. Now, notice that the scriptures do not assume a vegetarian diet on the part of the Israelites. God had given, at least by Genesis 9, uh, animals to man for food. Um, there, there were some laws, even in the book of Proverbs, that suggested not treating animals cruelly, being unnecessarily violent toward animals, is not uh, appropriate. 
But, but there's nothing wrong with killing and eating animals. God gave the animals to man for food. Uh, not that everyone has to choose to want to eat the animals. But, but it's appropriate, it's okay before the Lord to do that. Comments or questions on this uh, section? Uh, Nathan. It's, uh, it's interesting to see uh, how, how much God really planned this out. Um, because uh, there's just so, there's so much, there's so much disease and there's, there still is that you could get from uh, eating animals. And uh, it's, it's just interesting to see, like, they might not have understood why they couldn't eat that stuff at that time, but uh, it really God's plan was to keep them healthy and to keep them, you know, uh, from getting sick. So. And we'll look a little bit more at some specific animals they couldn't, couldn't eat. Not sure, so much uh, sure the health issues are a part of that, but certainly God did have some rules about what they could eat and what they couldn't. Other thoughts? Yeah. Although he kind of already addressed uh, the point, I think sometimes when we read these passages, we think, well, well, this is common sense. You know, everyone ought to be doing this. But, you know, we have to consider the time in which, um, the time in which this was was, uh, taking place. You know, such health regulations didn't exist in other nations. And I think this is in part why Israel advanced in the way it did, because, you know, God knew what he was talking about when he was giving these health regulations that ah. other nations didn't necessarily follow. I, I, I am not convinced that the laws about what they could and couldn't eat were health-based. Think about this. Now, we're, we're really looking at chapter 14 in this. But when he told them certain animals they couldn't eat, what are we told in the New Testament? We can eat them. So was God concerned about the health of the Israelites, but not our health? You know, you think about food laws, just in general. The first law God ever gave was a food law, wasn't it? Don't eat from the fruit of that one tree. Now, what kind of health was going to be hurt if they eat of the fruit of that tree? I don't think the point was, you know, this this is spoiled and, you know, you'll get sick and die. Uh, as a physical matter, but it was a, a spiritual matter. They needed to respect God's law. I'm not sure we have to find a rationale behind the food laws. I think the rationale to me, and we'll look at this more, but it's a matter of the clean, unclean principle. That God was teaching a spiritual lesson in a physical way. He declared foods unclean to teach the principle that we need to do clean things, not unclean things. And then he relaxed the food laws in the New Testament and, and taught us the spiritual principle to stay away from all spiritual uncleanness. Now I recognize it's really popular, the idea that the food laws and a lot of the laws in the Old Testament were health-based. I'm just not persuaded of that, especially on the basis that God tells us in the New Testament it's okay. So you can think about that how you want to. I'm obviously uh, probably disagreeing with a good part of the group here when I say that. So uh, you can evaluate my uh, my evidence and uh, go from there. Then, do you think the reason why we are prohibited from drinking the blood uh, in all three eras, pre-old law, old law, and out in the new covenant, is because God is seeking to preserve the unique um, and exclusive uh, and special action of Christians? consuming the blood of Christ. That was meant to be a, a very you know, sacred thing. And so he's kind of keeping that 
to be an exclusive act. I don't know about that. I mean, the thing he keeps saying is that the wife is in the blood. Now, exactly how to understand that, I'm not sure. Uh, so I, I don't know that I have a good grasp of that. But but somehow or other, the blood is considered the life of the animal, and therefore to eat the blood is inappropriate, so you could eat the animal. But understanding that more than that, somebody may have a better observation on the rationale. Yeah, Aaron? I mean, just in the broader sense, I mean, that would teach them a lesson that the blood, the life, and the thing about, you know, giving an animal as a sacrifice, the blood that's spilled is a life that's given in atonement. So I guess it's Correct. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly correct. And that, that maybe extends that another step. Yes, Joe. As far as the whole food thing goes, I always found it kind of cool, but um, there was always a sharp contrast shown between like pagan nations and how they lived and how they overindulged in all foods. And God's people were um, taught not to eat certain things, showing restraint, showing self-control. Like like Daniel, he was told not to eat certain things, like or he he um, was offered all like that nation's food, and he decided to, you know, just vegetables and water, and he was healthy and fine. I know it's not the, it's not the health aspect. It's, it's like the self-control. It's the, do you know what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, I'm not even sure I want to say it's self-control. What if we said it's the idea that God's will needs to extend to all aspects of our life, that he has the right to tell us even what to eat? You know, I, I might prefer looking at it that way. Though, you know, there's a lot of times when we look at laws and then we're saying, okay, what's the deeper principle or what does this mean? That we may have some differences of views. That's not all bad. It may help us to think about it from different angles. But I think the thing I get most out of that is God has the right to tell me everything. And yeah. uh, we're obviously used, I mean, sins are almost always. Bad. Uh, it's like bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> words, <laughs> you know, and so we seem to, you know, be able to, this is sinful because of this bad result that comes from it. It's helpful to see here that there's nothing evil comes from, you know, you know, having you know, ham. But it doesn't, it doesn't need to be some evil consequence. If God says it's a bad thing, you shouldn't be doing it, then that, that's sufficient. So. So when we're looking at his laws, we don't have to always see that, oh, well, this is, the reason we can't do this is because this bad consequence. The reason is because that's what we want to say. That's where I come down. I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that forbidden fruit in, in Genesis. I mean, you know, is there some, you know, physical, logical principle that you could see, well, that's why God said not to eat it. I mean, it looks to me like it's almost giving them just the choice to obey God or not to obey God. I, I, I don't know that we have to say, well, I can understand that there's a, a logical, to me, reason why God said don't do this. Some things we may be able to say, yeah, I can sure see a good reason for that. Some things we may never see why he would say it, but we respect him. Yes? I think in our culture that's a really humbling principle because we want to know everything and there needs to be an explanation for everything. So, particularly in American culture, I think it's a really humbling principle. So, if you like shopping, when your father says something, you just do it and there is no explanation because you can never know. You can never understand. What is a child's favorite question word? Why? Why? Yes. Tim? 
I was going to say, too, it's interesting because food laws like this would have made it communion with the nations around them impossible. Because after you make a treaty with the king, you'd have a feast. And if the king got around, you know, killing pigs and stuff, you can't have a feast with that king. But that's interesting, too, because in Israel, you can't have that communion because of food laws. But with Peter having his vision, he can now have communion and eat meals with Gentiles. I'm good with that. Yeah, I think certainly those laws did tend to create a greater barrier separation between the Israelites and the other nations. So I can see that. Good thing to think about. Good to, to recognize. Joseph. definitely seeing spiritual principles being taught by physical laws. That leads us to a lot of things to think about. I agree that this idea of not eating the blood leads us to think about Jesus shedding his blood for our sins. There is unfortunately a whole lot of debate about that among brethren these days, but you know, when you think about Jesus shed his blood for our sins. What does that mean? It clearly doesn't mean that if Jesus cut himself, you know, his blood that poured out of that cup would save us from our sins. It wasn't like the blood in that sense. So we understand that the idea of Jesus shedding his blood to save us is the idea of him dying for us. That was the idea. And I believe biblically that we need to understand the concept of a sacrifice. That God taught in the Old Testament through animal sacrifices, the concept that when a man sins, a man must die, but the animal took the place of the man in dying in his place. So instead of the man dying, the lamb died. Now, that was a symbol when it's all said and done, because no lamb could be an adequate substitute for man. But those lambs foreshadowed the ultimate Lamb of God who would take the punishment for man's sins. He would die in man's place. I believe that's the Bible teaching. I'm aware of the fact that these days that is not nearly as popular as it has been. 
that I think that's what the Bible's teaching. And that's something probably we need to study more and be clear about from a biblical standpoint. And I do think then that these laws about the blood help us to see that significance given to shedding blood means dying as an atonement, dying as a sacrifice, dying to take the place of the death of the man. Uh, I've got a question about the meaning of the last bit in verse 22 where it says uh, the clean and the, the unclean and the clean alike may eat them. What is that, what is that talking about? Is that their animals eating unclean? No, I think it's people. That the, the unclean could still eat the animal. You didn't have to be clean to eat an animal. People who were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Okay. Seth? Uh, we also can see from this how just offensive Jesus' statement would be to a physically minded person when he says, unless you drink the Son of Man, the blood of the Son of Man, you have no part in it. Um, just how outlandish a statement that would be. Yeah, that, that draws attention to itself. Now, boy, we all uh, have varying views on a lot of passages. John 6, in my judgment, was not as much offensive as it was quite a shocking way to say it. They understood he didn't mean drink his blood, literally. They understood he meant take him inside of them, themselves. He may have meant also the idea of appropriating the atonement. I don't know if they got that. But they understood the idea of eating him and drinking him as not meaning literally drinking his blood. But it meant he wasn't feeding them, and they didn't like that. But it was a striking way to say it. When they were forbidden to eat blood, to say, drink my blood, makes you, what? And they, I think they got it. Uh, they didn't like it because they wanted food. But there are different interpretations of John 6 as well. Yes? I think God's proclamation here that the life is in the blood really shows his manifold wisdom so much greater than humankind because we're the people who bled out the toxins when people were sick. So, he's just so great. He, he has so much wisdom before we could even think. Well, it does make you wonder what current medical practices may 100 or 200 years from now be looked at as uh, counterproductive, but uh, we don't ever know quite as much as we think we do. Um, somebody want to read 29 to 32? When the Lord cuts off before you the nations which you are going into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods. How do these nations serve their gods that I, may, that I also may do likewise? You shall thus, you shall not thus, you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates which they had done for their gods, for they even burnt their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. You know, he closes off this section. I'm going to have this on the next. Uh, yeah, he closes off looking again at idolatry here as he continues and says, don't inquire how do they serve their gods. God hates what they do. They even sacrifice their children to these pagan gods. You can see 
even from a modern context, sort of a fascination with the mythology and ritual and all of that. You know, aren't these Canaanite practices very interesting and intriguing? And isn't this a culturally fascinating way to, to come to know God and all that sort of thing? Isn't that what people say today? A lot of people. I mean, I don't know a lot about sociology and anthropology and all those other ologies. But it seems to me like that's a lot the attitude people would have today say about Native American religions. Oh, well, you know, this was a very very uh, advanced, sophisticated idea. We want to respect their traditions and their religious culture and beliefs and so forth. God just wasn't like that. He didn't, he didn't say that. Don't go in there and, well, you need to research that. You need to appreciate and be sensitive to, to their you know, beliefs and understanding. He, didn't, he wasn't all that. He was very much against that. It seems to me like we get a lot out of these passages as we just compare them to this modern, hyper-tolerant attitude toward any aberrant worship of any god, we're supposed to just embrace those things. God did not. I mean, if we're going to serve the God of the Bible, we're going to be against all other religious forms and practices. Yes, Mike. And that can apply toward any aspect of our life of being curious about sin and wanting to experiment with that kind of thing. Like, Alcohol and drugs. If you're curious as to what kind of, in how what kind of feeling you would have from that, we can see that curiosity kills. Just how much poison do you want to take into your system just to see what it feels like? Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts, Sean. We can study ourselves into disobedience. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they weren't supposed to want to know the details about all of this. And if we're not careful, we learn the wrong things and it poisons our heart and our mind. So there is, there are things to be learned and there are things to just be avoided and recognize they're dangerous to us. Yes? Um, when they, if they did, when they did talk to the idolatrous people, they probably thought of what a lot of people think today. Oh, how can we better our worship? How can we make it more meaningful, more spiritual, make it uh, hyper-feeling? Uh, you think about the things that they did, worshiping, uh, sacrificing their children, and how in some cultures they bring in snakes. They're like, that's just outlandish things, but oh, how it makes me feel more scared and more in awe. Um, and it's just following what's not... Yeah. We've absolutely, when it comes to worship, got to just listen to what the Lord says and follow what He teaches. You know, we can't decide, I think this makes it better, it makes me feel more spiritual. You know, we use the term spiritual a lot in our day. And spiritual becomes just kind of this vague notion that whatever seems to me to be good and brings me closer to God, that's what we ought to do. I don't know what is good or what makes me closer to God. I have to rely on God's revelation for that. Other thoughts? Brandon? This seems like in general that most false doctrine all starts with just unselfishness. You know, when we start committing a sin and we realize that's not part of God's word, but we want to ease our conscience, so then we start to make the Bible something we don't want it to say. And so really it all starts with we really seeking God's will. And then we'll understand the truth like we should. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yes? I think it's interesting um, just the way that they were sacrificing and honoring their gods 
if you are worshiping like a different way, that's not God. They had their different gods because they wanted to worship in a certain way. God wants us to worship His way because you're worshiping Him. Amen. Yes, exactly. As you can see, and as I suspected, when we start getting more into the detailed laws in Deuteronomy, there's more things to think about. This might be thought of as the part of the book that's driest, but I think in many ways it's the most intriguing. Nathan? Um, I was just going to say that emotion can really become a drug, and we have to be careful not to worship emotion, but worship God. Amen. Amen. Look at this next section. Somebody read 13 verses 1 to 5. 